We live in a fantasy world now. Reality has been destroyed. This is the time that we really need to pay attention. The probabilities are overwhelmingly on gold's side. That is the best environment to see gold increase its value. Welcome to Palisades Gold Radio. I'm your host, Tom Bodrovix. Joining me today is Lynn Alden, founder of Lynn Alden Investment Strategy. How are you today, Lynn? Good. How are you? Excellent. Thanks for joining me. So, you know, in your in your most recent public newsletter, you analyzed the problems of how difficult it is to store a house sale equivalent sum of money for anyone, whether it be in a developing country or a developed country. So maybe we could kind of start around the discussion of the issues that make that such a difficult proposition to do, not only from an inflationary standpoint, but also maybe a, a financial censorship standpoint. Sure. So basically, we can think of the global financial system as essentially a giant barter system. I mean, money's money's meant to solve the barter system, but because you know, instead of you know one or two underlying monies like say gold and silver, we the current system has 180 different fiat currencies, of which something like 130 of them are free floating. Uh, the other ones are pegged, but pegs can break, and so we essentially have these 180 different local monopolies uh, on currencies. And if you're just in a certain jurisdiction, that's that's what you're expected to save and that's what you're expected to spend with. Mm-hmm. And that's what holds stable value relative to at least relative to wages and, and average price levels in your jurisdiction, because it's all denominated in that and wages tend to be sticky and cer- certain types of pricing tends to be sticky. And the problem, of course, is that, you know, outside of, say, the top dozen currencies, most of them are, are pretty uh, bad at holding value, I mean, even the top 12. Lose value slowly, sometimes more quickly than others, but it, it's a general slow loss of, of purchasing power. But if you're outside of those top 12, you, you're more likely to lose value very, very quickly. Um, and it's, it's sometimes those jurisdictions fall, but it's also because the, those core countries push chaos to the periphery, right? Because, you know, they're, they're, they're the ones that have to borrow in, in say dollars, right? So instead of issuing debt in their own currency, they're often issuing debt in a foreign currency, which introduces volatility and default risk. And so the challenge is if, if I, I asked this question because it's, I, I actually have family in Egypt and they were looking to sell a multifamily home. Mm-hmm. And of course, different different participants that, that own parts of that home want to have different timelines for when they might deploy that into whatever they end up owning next. And so I asked the question on Twitter. I was like, if you had to sell property in a, in a country with a currency crisis and hold that value for whatever reason for two years, how would you hold it? And it just showed that that the nature of that question is is one. A lot of people in developed markets don't think of that, and it, it just shows how inefficient the current system is. Because some people are like, "Well, I would just hold it in dollars." It's like, "Well, where are you going to hold the dollars?" Right? If you're in Egypt or you're in Argentina, where are you going to hold the dollars exactly? Are you going to hold them in your local local bank where they could be confiscated? Uh, you could have a foreign bank account, but then that implies you're kind of wealthy, right? I mean, not not a lot of people don't even have domestic bank accounts, let alone foreign bank accounts. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can do stable coins, but then you're relying on a, on a you know foreign counterparty, which many people stable coins are a temporary answer, but it's not a perfect answer. Some people hold it in gold, uh, physical cash dollars, but then you're literally holding like a lot of value in your apartment. You know, you're, you're prone to theft, prone to loss. And it just shows that, yeah, you know, basically there's just, there's a lot of frictions around one. It, it should be able to store value stably, but it can't. And so I, I was kind of used as an example to show how the 21st century, how um, just it, it basically still inefficient and 
unable to meet the needs of people, the global financial system still is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's really interesting, you know, reading reading through that article, you you give the the example of how the Egyptian pound really got, you know, devalued by 50% overnight. And and yeah. some of these challenges that that really face people that maybe, as you said, there's a lot of investors that don't necessarily think about that on a day-to-day basis. One of the other parts of it was that you brought up was financial censorship. So how does that play into it as well, Lynn? Sure. So uh, approximately 50% of people in the world live in what is classified as an authoritarian country. And of course, the, the exact definitions can change depending on what, what source you're looking at, the exact threshold uh, where they where they make that differentiator. Freedom House, for example, uh, puts it in three different categories. You know, every country gets like a score along these different levels of freedom, and then they're broadly classified into free, partially free, or not free. And unfortunately, about half the world lives in, in countries that are uh, you know, not free or, or barely minimally free. Mm-hmm. And the problem there is that there's pretty arbitrary rule of law. If you do something that the government doesn't like, uh, they can just freeze your money, confiscate your money. And there's, there's not necessarily recourse. There's not necessarily a separate, uh, a, a distinct judicial system, uh, to you basically get, make sure there's, that there's fair treatment for everyone, that there's, uh, rule of law. I mean, that, that's a hard enough concept in, in some of the countries with the best rule of law. It's still never perfect. Uh, but it's, it's, it's far more unlikely to happen in, in a lot of countries. And so, you know, obviously Canada was a recent example in, in what is, you know, a developed country that there's bank freezes associated with protesting. Mm-hmm. But there's also, I mean, I, I, I've directly spoken with, for example, Nigerian protesters. Uh, they're protesting police violence, uh, in Nigeria. Um, and many of them had their bank accounts frozen for protesting. Mm-hmm. And so that then, for example, they were turning to Bitcoin. To, to you know basically still be able to collect donations and then and then make outlays because they're they're kind of going around the banking system. I also talked to uh someone who worked on Alexei Navalny's uh team basically uh, uh now he's in jail but he was uh Putin's opposition uh in Russia uh basically an anti-corruption lawyer and you know they would have their bank accounts frozen and they returned to Bitcoin again and then and then the funny thing is the government would then open their bank accounts because they'd rather see the money flowing through there and at least see where it's going rather than it all be over in like Bitcoin or stable coins or things like that. And so basically, in addition to the loss of purchasing power inflation, many people in, in many countries struggle with banks that, you know, can, can just censor them, governments that can tell the banks to censor them, difficulty making global payments. Like, let's say you just want to, you work in a, a country in Africa and you want to do graphic design work for someone and they have trouble paying you because you're trying to get two different systems to operate. And then there's like, all sorts of checks and regulations that are stopping that money flow. And it just, there's a lot of frictions in the global financial system, both for authoritarian reasons and for inflation reasons. So did the challenge of moving physical assets like gold and silver end up being, you know, an inefficiency that ultimately led to the abstraction and financialization of the system of account that we've relied upon for centuries? Yeah, that's a that's a case that I made that, that essentially there's a speed mismatch between commerce and money. And so if you go back prior to the 1800s, literally for thousands of years, money and commerce moved at the same speed, which is the speed of, of people, which, you know, foot, horse, ships, that's about as fast as you could you could move. And that include both commerce and the actual money, whether it's gold or silver coins, or even like if you had banknotes or ledgers. You still could only transport that information the same speed with which humans are, are moving. Um, but starting with the telecommunication systems in the 1800s, the mid 1800s, 
you know, invented the telegraph, then the telephone, and then we we laid the undersea cables starting in the in the mid um, 1800s. And at that point, banks around the world could update each other's ledgers, uh, you know, in the same day. And so you basically had the speed of commerce could now be as quick as a phone call, which of course was then later accelerated with the internet. But let's you know, let's just say even the phone call, while settlement of underlying assets was still moving at the at the speed of gold or physical banknotes. And so that allowed governments and banks a lot of arbitrage. They basically arbitrage that speed difference because they say, okay, we have to abstract gold. We have to have banknotes that are backed by gold. And then those banknotes, even though those are physical, they're they're tied into this ledger system. It is a global telecommunications, you know, enhanced ledger system that can move around very quickly. And then once you centralize everything, you can just break a pen. You can just you can rug pull people, and that, that's what happened. That was kind of the whole story of the, you know, the 1900s, especially you know the first half of the 1900s, just mm-hmm. a series of rug pulls, no matter where you were. And uh, so that that's kind of the speed mismatch that that we've been in for a while. And I think that's that's why that's a big reason why we have the fiat currency system, that that nothing else has really been fast enough to keep up. And so gold is still useful as a savings asset, but it's it's not been uh, useful as say a, a far distance payment asset, and it's just we we have this kind of speed mismatch out there that allows these systems to exist uh, despite the fact that they just keep losing value. Mm-hmm. Obviously, cryptocurrencies and and you had mentioned earlier stable coins have become you know a major solution to this problem. But is dilution of many of these cryptocurrencies that have popped up, let's say, since Bitcoin's inception, one of the biggest issues that have plagued users of many of those of those alternative currencies well so i'm i'm not bullish on crypto as a whole um i I, so i I found value in bitcoin i think the design of the basically it's it's the truly decentralized one uh and it's it's got very strong network effects um i'm also i think stable coins are serving a purpose uh for for people as we just discussed um uh outside of that uh so i think that some of those cryptos do slow down the, the say adoption of things like Bitcoin and things like that because during a bull market anyone create can create a new coin you can divert capital of all these different things and then in a bear market most of them get wiped out they they give up a lot of their gains and they never really make higher highs in the next cycle so I I do think that there's a lot of dilution in that sense but it's it's one of those things where you know no matter how many pesos Argentina prints that doesn't dilute the dollar right and so for example no matter how much doge coins exist it doesn't dilute bitcoin because mm-hmm. they are different they are fundamentally different designs different hash rate different uh node networks uh different levels of ecosystem development and, and general seriousness um but it does divert capital does slow down adoption um and so that that's one of the achilles heels of of say bitcoin and, and, and broader crypto is that you know much like how you can't really copy Wikipedia. Like you can, you can copy all the data on Wikipedia. You can host Wikipedia on your own website, um, and you can have all the data. It's actually not that much data. You can fit it in a thumb drive. And then the question is, would you get traffic that Wikipedia has if you did that? Of course, the answer is no, because even though you can replicate all the text, you can't replicate all the links. You can't replicate the army of like uh, volunteer editors. Um, but you know, if people made a thousand fake Wikipedia's, you would you would divert some traffic to those at least for a period of time, and we kind of see that cycle after cycle um, as as you know the world explores this this technology. And so I do think dilution is kind of a it's always an intermediate concern uh, uh, throughout the space. So with you know all of the issues that we've seen with crypto, as you as you said, like we have 
we've had in some ways a, a loss of confidence because of some of this dilution. And obviously that's going to mean more regulation coming to that crypto industry, you know, in the near future here. Do you see this as a as a net positive or negative for for the industry? I think it depends where you're looking. I mean, a lot of the crypto space has has relied on regulatory arbitrage, right? So they're essentially securities. Basically, if you look at the Howey rule, you know, they they mostly meet the definition of securities. They're they're a centralized team or fairly centralized. They're raising capital to then work on something that is, you know, and that with their work, you know, trying to contribute value to that and, and make those make that those tokens appreciate in price. Mm-hmm. Um and so they've been operating in that gray zone. Uh, and I so I do think regulation would slow down them and and take away a lot of the kind of the, the scams. Um, but like, if you look at traditional startup financing, right? So if you, if you do a startup and, and you're, and you're either a developer or founder, an early VC investor, um, you're, you're tied to pretty much the success of that company, right? So you either need an exit, you need like a, either a company has to come in and acquire your company, uh, which means like serious business people will review your company and decide that they want to buy that and, and put it into their company. Or you go long enough and big enough and then go through all the SEC filings and you go public and then you can get excellent liquidity. Um, whereas what you see in the crypto space is you'll have all these early developers and, and financiers. They will, you know, uh, have, they, they'll issue these tokens for themselves at super cheap prices. Then, you know, they, they work on their project for a couple of years and, you know, something, there's a hype cycle. They get their coins listed on an exchange and then they sell to the retail public. And then their their project never really goes anywhere. It never actually really results in a product that that people are using any sort of consumer basis. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you've you've detached the financial gains of the early investors and the founders and the developers from the actual success of the underlying project that they built. And that's not healthy. Um, so you know, I do I do think there's probably more regulation. It's unclear what it's going to look like. Um, a lot of those can do jurisdictional arbitrage, so that you know if, if they can basically lose access to a large market like the U.S. or have their access restricted, but they can still exist by going to certain other smaller jurisdictions that are more open to those sort of things. But overall, I think that does pressure the industry. Um, when you look at, say, the Bitcoin-only ecosystem, I mean, Bitcoin's not a security. That's something that you know Gary Gensler has been very clear about. There's no issuer, uh, never raised capital. So that's more like a digital commodity. But most of what you see in the space it is more like a security. You can you can think of it more like an equity that just hasn't gone through the same sort of uh, registration process. Mm-hmm. So, what do you ultimately see as the solution to the value storage problem? I mean, I think the market's storing that out, like uh, kind of sorting that out now. I mean, I think mm-hmm. one of the potential long term solutions is is Bitcoin. It continues to to uh, do well, uh, but that's by no means assured. Uh, right now, the problem is that there's no perfect one. So there's a hotspot. I mean, that's why people have diversified portfolios because, you know, you store it in equities. Uh, they, they generate, you know, if you pick profitable ones, they generate cash and dividends. Um, uh, you can also store it in real estate. I mean, the problem with all that is it's, it's, you know, essentially non-custodial, right? You're, 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 you're tied into that country's ecosystem. It's not very mobile. Um, you know, uh, you can self-custody gold. That's partially outside of the system, but you know, good luck moving that around globally in any sort of sizable amounts uh, as a bare asset. Um, Bitcoin's really useful, but it's you know, it's 14 years old. It's very volatile, so you obviously you can't just you can't. Most people can't put all their money in Bitcoin, or you know, you, it, it's hard to say exactly what Bitcoin's going to look like in 30 years. Um, and so it's really about ex- a bunch of existing options 
a couple of newer, interesting options. And I think right now you have to kind of hedge your bets. You have to diversify a little bit based on your volatility profile and based on the research that you do. So I, I like a combination of uh, precious metals, equities, uh, some some real estate uh, and Bitcoin, kind of this, this mix of, of different types of assets. Mm-hmm. One of the points you bring up in that article too is trading maybe dollars or currencies for for gold or or making gold more digitally accessible. So what are some of the the important points of having you know having that ability to in in some ways digitize or or having digital access to a hard asset like gold? Well, so a couple of points. One is that um let's go back to bank accounts for a second. You know, banks have been around for centuries. Uh and in 20 years smartphone adoption has now just exceeded bank account adoption. So more people in the world have a smartphone than a bank account. And, and probably in five years, that gap will be wider because the, the rate of, of smartphone adoption is increasing because of the exponentially decreasing costs of you know the devices, uh, especially the, the inexp- inexpensive ones, as well as all the infrastructure that allows them to have you know mobile, mobile data. Um, and so basically, that gives people global access. To, to hold an asset, even a bearer asset, move it around, uh, you know, use the internet to exchange value, get financial services. And I think a basic premise is, you know, why should it be the case that everybody who has a smartphone can access good money, uh, access a global marketplace of monies, um, and get basic financial services, you know, uh, uncensorable payments, savings, uh, things like that. And so, like for example, one thing stable coins do is they say, well, I mean, you know, if, if you're an Argentinian and you want to hold dollars, you don't want to hold dollars in your Argentinian bank because they have a history of confiscating them. You could hold them on, you know, uh, uh, you know, you could hold them on a, a hardware wallet and you you hold stable coins on a hardware wallet and you're still reliant on the issuer of that stable coin, but that issuer is not an Argentinian, right? You're, you've now accessed a global marketplace of dollars. Um, and for you know, for some percentage of your savings, that might be a, a better risk reward than other things are available to you. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also been the same thing. We have essentially stable coins with gold, where you know, uh, uh, basically instead of accessing gold physically, which I think is the usually the best option, but if for some reason you can't or you're you're traveling a lot and you want some gold price exposure, there are redeemable. Uh, there, there's kind of like an ETF, but instead of just trading for a limited period of time on an exchange. You have this this globally trading token that represents redeemable claims for uh, custody gold, and so you've, you've essentially abstracted gold, and now you have uh, you know you still have counterparty risk, um, but it, it, you know you can choose what counterparties you want to work with and have that price exposure. And I think the last point there is, in the United States, stocks trade at about nineteen percent of the time, right? So they only trade a handful of hours each day. They only trade five days a week. They don't trade on holidays. And when you add that up all together you know, throughout the course of a year, their trading hours are 19% of all the hours in the year. So the other 81% of the time, they're not trading normal hours. You know, there's after hour stuff, there's futures, there's things like that, uh, usually not accessible to retail as easily. Um, and essentially what I, I think a reasonable question to ask is why don't why can't they trade 24-7 like stablecoins, gold-backed stablecoins do, Bitcoin? Things like that. And then also, you know, let's say you're in Nigeria and you want to own Apple stock. That's kind of hard to do sometimes unless you're unless you're wealthy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you could have any sort of traditional security, 
be accessible to anybody with a smartphone. Um, you know, I think it opens up the, the types of assets that people can own globally. And so I think those are reasonable questions to ask when it comes to can you improve the both the money rails and then the trading rails. And I think the only thing I would differ on is that a lot of people in the broad crypto space focus on those trading rails, those leveraging rails. And while some of that's interesting, I, I think the the most important thing that the world lacks is, is a good sound money. I think that that's where it's, it's worthwhile to focus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, a really interesting idea and a, and a great stat that securities are only available to be traded, you know, like you said, 19% of the time. Um, you know, Lynn, there are so many contradictory forces really looming over the year ahead here. Are there any particular asset classes that provide provide you with potential growth over the medium to long term here? So I, I think medium term is just challenging all around uh, because we have various, you know, in, in this year, 2023, we have a bunch of U.S. recession indicators. Um, uh, that's partially offset by China's reopening, you know, potential emerging market opportunities, uh, dollars, you know, off of its highs. It's unclear if it's going to stay there or not. And so there's a lot of uncertainty in, say, a six to 12 month period. Um, I, I am pretty bullish on precious metals. Uh, you know, I'm always I'm always tricky with one year forecast because you have to be right about the fundamentals, mm-hmm. but then you also have to be right about what people are going to pay for those fundamentals. And that's you know, in one year, that's like a guessing game. That's you know, it goes back to that old quote, like uh, you know, in the short term, you know, the market's a a, a a voting machine, in the in the long term, it's a weighing machine, right? So over the long term, they reflect fundamentals. In the near term, it's mostly sentiment, liquidity, things like mm-hmm. that. And so I, I I think there are plenty of opportunities in emerging markets. Uh, if you look North America, I think that uh, pipeline is still pretty attractive. I'm long-term bullish on energy. Um, you know, unclear for this year uh, because of some of those recession indicators, but long-term bullish on energy, uh, precious metals. Uh, I'm less bearish on banks than a lot of people are. Uh, and then, I, of course, I, I do like a Bitcoin allocation and and just select equities in different sectors that I think are recession-resistant uh, or that, you know, might face turbulence and recession, but that are well positioned to get through it and then provide good three to five year uh, returns from there. Mm-hmm. I'd like to dig into some of those some of those things that you mentioned. But before that, you know, you you mentioned that we're really this this u s. economic cycle is really pointing towards a a recession later this year. So let's dig into a little bit of the inflationary aspect. That we're seeing right now, you know, despite easing CPI prints pointing towards a disinflationary growth period, are we in a larger period of structural inflation? That's how I view it. And if you look at the 1970s, 1940s, which were the prior big inflationary cycles, they they also had periods of inflation, periods of disinflation, um, even though the decade as a whole was quite inflationary. Mm-hmm. And so right now, I think we are in a cyclical disinflation within a you know, a, a broader inflationary period. I think that, you know, this this inflationary period is not going to end until there's a big energy capex cycle. So you get a lot more cheap energy supply, because um, as long as we're still supply constrained, and any sort of big growth spurt we get is probably going to come with inflation associated with it, just because the supply side is still tight. Mm-hmm. In addition, when you look at the really long-term macro, when you start to get countries, you know, a lot of them well over 100% debt to GDP, and those debts are denominated in a currency that they can print. You know, the normal uh, historical pattern is that you inflate the debt away, that you, you run inflation hot while holding yields relatively low. And, you know, 
that basically you have to go back to the 40s to find a similar economic environment that we are now as far as say western you know developed country sovereign debt is concerned uh and so that that's to be a pretty inflationary trend as well so both looking at the commodity capex cycle and the macro sovereign debt long-term cycle i, I think both of those point towards structural inflation say between now and the 2030s um but there are periods of time where central banks and governments fight back. You know, in the 1970s, 1940s, you had you either have the central bank fighting back for periods of time, or you have things like uh, price and wage controls trying to fight back. There's all these ways that they can like hold the volleyball underwater for a period of time until something happens and they let it go, and it comes. There's another round of inflation, mm-hmm. and so I think that's that's kind of a way to think about the 2020s. So you know, you and I discussed shortly before we hit record here about the Fed's remittances to the U.S. Treasury has really fallen off a cliff here towards the end of 2022. What is the significance of that development? And is it due to the tightening of the balance sheet? So it is. Um, basically, the bank in many ways, not always, but in many ways, it operates with a normal bank. They have assets and they have liabilities. And they earn a spread uh, between the assets and liabilities. Now, their liabilities consist of one, banknotes, which obviously don't earn a yield if you pay for cash. Um, other liabilities consist of uh, bank reserves. So much like how we hold our money at a bank, and that's an asset for us and a liability for the bank, banks hold their spare cash at their central bank, which is an asset for those banks, but it's a liability for the central bank. Um, and so, you know, uh, then they also have things like reverse repos. Those are, those are types of liabilities. So the Fed has these series of liabilities. Some of them pay interest rates. Then the other side, they have assets, which for the Fed are mostly U.S. Treasuries, and then mortgage-backed securities. Those are the, the bulk of their assets. And historically, their assets paid more than their liabilities, especially because, again, some of those liabilities were just banknotes that yield, yielded zero. Um, and the way it's legally structured is when the Fed earns a profit, they pay for their operating expenses, they pay a dividend to the, the banking system, their owners, essentially, and then they remit the rest to the U.S. Treasury. And so in recent years, they basically paid the government, the U.S. Treasury, about a hundred billion dollars a year in in spare profits, uh, and so that that just goes to the U.S. Treasury, kind of goes back to the taxpayer. Um, but because they've raised their interest rates so much and yields were so low before, now they're actually losing money. That they're that you know their liabilities. Obviously, the bank still yield zero, but the interest they pay to uh, commercial bank reserves, their bank balance at the Fed is four point four percent. And also reverse repo payments are very high. Uh, meanwhile, they're still holding treasuries from years ago that are, that were yielding like, you know, 2% when they were issued. They're still holding low, low mortgage backed securities. Uh, and so basically instead of paying the treasury, this is, this is where they differ from a bank. Instead of going bankrupt, uh, or, you know, wiping out their equity and their capital, instead, they're basically just giving an IOU to the treasury. They're like, well, like, you know, we're not going to pay you now because we're not, you know, we're not making a profit. And so we're just going to rack up IOUs. And then even when the Fed becomes, say, if they ever become uh, profitable again, instead of going back to paying the Treasury, they get to pay back all those IOUs first. They basically get to pay themselves back and then they start paying the Treasury. So it's kind of like a bank that can't go bankrupt. Instead, you use kind of weird accounting uh, when you go bankrupt because you're the, you know, you're the source of the money. So it's a different situation. But the, the long and short of it is that a lot of people are posting those as doom charts. And the way that I've been phrasing it is, I mean, one, that's a, that's a source of income that is dried up for the federal government for the foreseeable future, right? So that's just, that's going to add to deficits. 
Number two, you have to ask, well, if the Fed's essentially losing money for, for a simple way of putting it, who's making the money? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really the, the, the two pools of liability that are making money. One is money markets. Uh, basically, they're, they're the ones that are putting a lot of money into reverse repos. So, for example, if you look at a Fidelity money market fund, they're making pretty good yields. Uh, a lot of the money's flowing there. And number two is, is commercial banks. They're getting paid 4.4% for just holding cash at the Fed. And if you deposit money into a U.S. bank, you're probably getting paid half a percent, if that, on your deposit. Uh, but on the on the bank's deposit, they're making 4.4%. So they're essentially earning a spread risk-free and they're getting, you know, they're getting pretty good income from this. So basically now there's kind of money pouring from the public sector into the into the financial system, essentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like you say, that's an important point to try to understand who's on the other side of that. And and that's what makes you, you know, so bullish on banks at this time, right? At least less bearish than the average person, right? So obviously the challenge with banks is if you do get a significant recession, you're going to get some degree of loan losses, right? Mm -hmm. So banks might, you know, they might get clipped in that scenario. I think the difference is that in, in 2008, for example, banks and real estate were the epicenter of that. Banks were highly levered. They had very little allocation to to low risk assets, a very high allocation to risky assets. And in the current environment, uh, obviously some bank there's some banks with a lot of say auto loan exposure. I wouldn't necessarily touch those, but for a typical diversified medium to large bank, they are very allocated to cash treasuries uh, and things like that, and they're paying very little to their depositors while getting paid a lot of money from the Fed. Uh, and then they're relatively not aggressively allocated to riskier assets. And so they're actually in pretty good shape. Now they would still, you know, get hurt in a recession, but they wouldn't be the epicenter of the recession. Mm-hmm. And then I would argue that they're already priced for a mild recession. Uh, and so even if you have flat to down earnings because of some of those loan losses, you know, when they're trading at nine or 10 times earnings, uh, you know, that, that's the market's already concerned about their forward profitability. Uh, and so I, you know, I think that. I'm bullish on banks with say a five-year view. I think that during an inflationary cycle, they're going to make really good spreads. They're going to be pretty profitable. Um, but I, I have you know concerns around a six to twelve month view. Uh, but I, I don't really expect them to, to, to crash in a, in a sort of a, a financial crisis scenario. You you brought up the loan idea. What is the correlation of bank loans to the yield curve, and and what is the significance of that relationship? So historically, it's, it's been on a lag. Basically, when you get the yield curve inversion, usually you have uh, the rate of, of change of, of bank loan growth roll over uh, in, in the subsequent quarters. And I think we're seeing that now. Basically, you have inverted yield curve. Bank lending still been strong in these past two quarters, uh, but it's showing signs of topping out in rate of change terms, which essentially means that the, the absolute amount of bank loans is still going up, but the rate that it's going up is starting to roll over. Which is historically, you know, not very good for for business growth. Mm-hmm. So, Lynn, do you see energy production and distribution playing into the next wave of inflation? I, I think that's one of the key bottlenecks. Um, so, part of this recent inflation spike, part of the um, the severe level of inflation was was impacted by how quickly we changed our buying patterns. Right? If you're if you're locked at home. Uh, you can't go to restaurants, you can't travel, you know, travel's a burden, you have to get all this paperwork. Some countries just shut down travel. So you're like, well, I'm gonna like I'm gonna get all this electronic equipment, I'm gonna I'm gonna, you know, uh redo my home, I'm gonna uh redo my appliances, consumer durables. That so a lot of the spending shifted away from services and towards goods. 
but then a lot of people saturate. They already got they already got that out of their system. Then the economy reopens and lock, and it's easier to travel, less paperwork for traveling, less test requirements, things like that. People are going out to restaurants. People are traveling more. They're spending less on, uh, you know, consumer durables, consumer goods, and so those can stress supply chains a lot, right? So that that I think is is inherently temporary because you're not going to have that big whipsaw keep happening. That that was like a very odd lockdown related, you know, two to three year situation. Um, but the part I think that's going to be sticky is the fact that we we are just underinvested in energy in a global sense, right? So. Uh, you know, OPEC plus is not really able to bring a lot more energy online. Um, you know, uh, North America, we, we, we've gotten a lot of the easiest shale deposits. Um, you know, for a while due to ESG, they're like, you know, banks shouldn't lend to, you know, oil companies and like pools of capital should stop investing in oil companies. So it raises their cost of capital. So they're like, well, instead of keeping the drilling, we're going to focus on paying down debt. We're going to, you know, pay bigger dividends to shareholders. We're going to be self-financing. We're going to be profitable and we're going to finance our own capital expenditures because we can't rely on these external pools of capital, just, you know, always buying our equity and debt. And, and so basically that will incentivize less, you know, overall less drilling. And so I do think in this, in this decade, and we've already seen a taste of it, especially in Europe, but I do think we're going to get waves of energy crisis uh, just because the supply side is still very tight. So when you try to get a big growth spurt, you're quickly going to run into to constraints on energy, and that that's a you know that's an inflationary situation. So, you know, one of the one of the ideas that is not a lot of people think about is the energy return on investment or EROI. Do you see this as a real problem facing the world, and what sources of energy best address this equation? So yeah, so basically, the part part of the growth of civilization, humanity. Over the past two centuries is, is our tapping into denser and denser energy sources. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you, you know, if you go out and chop wood, bring the whole wood home and you use that to burn, you know, you burn, you heat your home, you cook food, you, um, you know, you power something simple, you know, that gives you a certain return on, on energy. So you, you spent one unit of energy, right? Uh, basically food energy that the work of the man that went out and chopped it all up and brought it back. But you're getting a multiple of energy back. Maybe you're getting five times as much energy from the burning of that wood than the than the food of that, that man that had to go do it all. Um, when you tap into coal and you tap into oil, you tap into gas, you're getting a higher uh, multiple. You know, for every for all the energy that you have to spend on equipment and you know setting up an oil well, you're getting a much higher multiple of energy out uh, of that oil well. Uh, and of course, the highest is nuclear. Um, if you, if you do a nuclear facility, you can get upwards of a hundred times your energy back, uh, you know, from the uranium, but also from the construction of the, you know, the complex facility. They can then run for 75 years and you get a, a very large energy return on investment. Um, solar and wind and, and biomass don't have very high energy returns on investment. Basically, you put energy in, you do get a multiple back over the long term, but it's not, it's not as high as a multiple as hydrocarbons or nuclear. And so essentially that, you know, if we trend towards lower energy return on investment uh, types of sources, we're likely to have inflation. And it's somewhat disguised by the fact that, you know, people will point towards, say, negative energy pricing for solar, right? That, you know, basically that in some contexts, say, solar or wind can be unusually cheap. And they're like, well, that's the future. The problem is not that they, so they can produce very cheap energy for parts of the time. The problem is, 
that they're usually paying out energy when you don't want it, right? And that's why it's that's that's why it's free or negative, right? Because it's basically you know if, if the sun's on, you can get a lot of extra energy, but then when you need need energy in the evening, you know where are you going to get that energy from? Same thing with the wind. I mean, basically, if you have a super hot day, everybody turns on the air conditioning, the wind goes out. What happens to all your windmills? And so the problem is that storage is very expensive uh, and uses a lot of battery metals. And it's just, it's not economical. So that, you know, that changes the equation. It's usually not fully included in the, say, the, the marketing or the, you know, the, the kind of promotion of those types of energies. And I think a last point to think about is that the more you let nature store the energy and concentrate it, the more efficient it's going to be. So for example, Let's say a hydro dam, for example. Where does the energy for that come from? Well, it's a combination of it's mostly solar, but it's concentrated solar. So basically, the sun is sending all this energy on Earth. It's evaporating water over very large distance. Then it's raining. But then, because of geography, because of gravity, all that is collecting into rivers and flowing into bigger rivers, and it's concentrating all of that pent up solar that evaporated that water in the first place. And then, right at that concentrated point at that big river. We put a dam, and then we capture what is essentially, you know, indirect solar power. And it, but we let nature just, you know, do a lot of that concentration for us. We're, we're gathering this energy over a very large area that's all been channeled through this river. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas when you're trying to say capture it with a solar panel or a windmill, you're you're not capturing concentrated stored up energy. You're capturing the flow. You're capturing like a less dense flow. And so the problem is then, what, how do you store it? Well, you have to make your own storage. You have to go out and get battery metals, and you have to make your own storage. And so that's where you're you're, you're essentially trying to replicate what nature does uh, with these other sources, whether it's hydro, whether it's hydrocarbons, nuclear. These are all very dense stored types of energy. Um, and there are, I mean, there are some interesting renewable ones that are that are pretty dense and stable, like geothermal. Um, there's one called uh, uh, ocean uh, thermal. Energy conversion, OTEC. Uh, you, basically, you can get like base load power from you know the difference in in say hot uh, ocean water surface and and colder uh, depths. It's kind of a hundred year technology. It's not just it's, it's it's my view. It's under tapped. So there are renewable forms that are that are uh, uh, dense, but uh, uh, the general rule is that a lot of them aren't, especially wind and solar. Whereas hydrocarbons and nuclear are the ones that have been you know these these reliable. Uh, sources that let nature do as much of the concentration and storage as possible. Have you done any thinking around the the base EROI number that we need to see to 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 continue the current economic path that we're on? If we're if we're expending too much energy to be able to to gather energy, what does that base case look like, do you think, where it starts to hamper our ability to continue enjoying let's say the the current lifestyle that that first world countries have versus expending so much of that energy to gather more so it's a good question it's going to vary depending on what exactly you want to do you need a higher energy return on investment if you're trying to grow rapidly mm -hmm. right so if you're if you're india and you're trying to go from two or three thousand GDP per capita to twenty or thirty thousand GDP per capita. Basically, expand your per capita energy usage by five x. You need a very high energy return investment. Um, on the other hand, if you're a wealthy country that already is very energy abundant, 
Uh, and you're trying to basically keep what you have and, and, and grow more slowly. Basically, you already have a lot of your material comforts done, and now you want, you know, you want software, you want travel, you want media, things like that. Um, that's going to grow more slowly, and you can get away with lower energy return on investment as long as it's stable and as long as it's not too low, right? You still need you still you still need some reasonable multiple. And so there's there's no exact number that's going to determine what everybody needs. Uh, because it really depends on how quickly you're you're trying to grow from a whatever base of growth you're at. Um, but basically, once you get down into the single digits, you're you're more likely to run into challenges, especially if you're if you're still trying to grow at a at a reasonable pace. Mm-hmm. Has humanity ever transitioned from a high EROI energy source to a lower EROI energy source? Not yet. I mean, basically, you know, for for thousands of years, we were using pretty low energy return on investment. You also had low population growth during that time. I mean, you had, you had a pretty stable global population. Uh, and then with the discovery of coal and then oil and gas, nuclear, you had this big you know, rise in all these energy sources. You had a big corresponding rise in population because one barrel of oil, even though you know it's under $100 right now, that gives you thousands of man hours worth of energy. You know, basically it's you know, you're, 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 it's like, you're, it's like, imagine how many people you'd have to hire to like run a bicycle to like power all your lights, power your heat, uh, many, you know, power all the facilities that manufacture all the stuff, uh, power all the trucks that bring that stuff to you. We, we basically all have the equivalent of like dozens of, you know, like, like laborers working for us, but it's all the form of like, you know, hydrocarbons and automation and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, that's really the kind of the, the, the key challenge there overall um and the world's only gone up in terms of energy return on investment and only really in the past you could argue the past like um say a couple decades we've been kind of flatlining there where we're trying to go more into like wind and solar uh the, the developed countries have kind of shunned nuclear um and now i think we're running some challenges but even then that's been offset by the fact that you know the developing countries are still going full speed ahead with coal uh, oil, uh, in many cases, hydrocarbons, thing, uh, I mean, uh, nuclear, things like that. And so overall, the world's only gone higher in terms of energy return on investment. It's never tried to transition to a lower energy return on investment um, way of looking at it. How do transportability and payback period also factor into the thinking of the best sources of energy available to countries that are either trying to grow and or trying to maintain what they have? So energy return on investment itself doesn't measure how quickly you get that energy back. And so another factor to consider is the, is the payback period, like you mentioned. And so, for example, you can imagine two types of energy sources. One, um, you know, you, you get a 20 return on investment uh, over five years. And you get another one where you, you put in the same amount of energy and you get a 30 times payback, but it's over 10 years. Right. And the question is, which one should you pick? Well, if you're trying to grow very, very quickly, if, again, if you're India, you probably pick the first one, right? You you want you want energy now uh, quickly, and then you can use that to make even more energy, and you can go up more exponentially. If you're if you're already a sort of wealthy country with slow population growth, um, and there's just there's just less overall rampant demand for more and more energy. I mean, so there's always people always want more marginal energy. I mean, if if it was if it was really cheap to fly private jets, I would right, but it's not, and so we have, we always we always have to economize. But for example. When you're uh, in a, you know, you're, you're coming from a small base, 
you know, small changes in energy, like a d- small doubling of your energy rapidly uh, changes your life. Whereas once you have a lot of energy, uh, you know, a little bit more doesn't really radically change your life. And so in a, in a developed country, probably that second option is better. You're saying, well, we can put in energy, we can get 30 times as much back. And that's fine because we'll, we already have pretty much all the energy we want. We're just trying to grow slowly and that's fine. Mm-hmm. And you're probably going to get better, you know, unit economics of that energy. Um, and so that that's why, for example, in a lot of developing countries, you'll see a lot of coal usage. And the question is why? And it's, well, it's not that hard to build a coal plant. It's quick. You don't need to get advanced expertise. You build the coal plant, you get a lot of energy quickly, right? Whereas a nuclear facility, you know, it might have better energy return on investment. But that's going to take years to build. It requires, you know, there's only a handful of, of entities in the world capable of constructing these um, and then it's, it's got a very long payback period. So it's a really good long-term investment, but some countries are, are, you know, in such impoverished state or trying to grow so quickly that they, they, they're not in a position where they can rely on those long-term investments quite yet. And, and instead they, they pick the more rapid turnover, you know, the coal plants, the natural gas plants, things like that. Are there many, are many of the current ESG frameworks that many companies are operating under not properly analyzing the trade-offs of, of these different energy sources? I think that's how, I, I, yes, I do, because I think a lot of them are just focused on the cost of the energy and not the benefits that they provide, um, especially in the developing world. I mean, having energy, not having energy is, is often the difference between life and death. It's, it's the difference between being able to, you know, your crops are starting to fail because of drought. Do you have enough energy to get water and irrigate them? Um, there's a disaster that struck, a big storm struck. Can you get food in? Can you, can you, uh, you know, uh, do all that? Even like things like sewage and all part of why we had such a big population growth is because we have running water, we have water cleaning, all this is energy intensive. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, you know, it reduces our exposure to diseases. It, it increases our, our nutritional quality. Um, unless we start going down like, you know, industrialized food processes, which unfortunately we've done, but essentially we have, we have better access to things we need to, to survive. And that's, I think, not factored enough into these ESG frameworks. They're kind of these one size fits all, um, approaches. And I think people don't realize, like, you know, if we were to have a severe disruption to our energy production, that would kill a lot of people. I mean, that's a, that's about the worst ESG thing you can do. Uh, and so there, you know, there, there can be impacts from pollution, obviously, uh, from certain things, but then there's also, you know, countries go through this development process and they have to get the energy that they need in order to expand their quality of life, expand their life, uh, you know, their lifespans, uh, make it possible for, you know, uh, you know, premature babies to survive in hospitals and, and, you know, they need all that reliable energy to get through that period. All that comes from having, you know, abundant, reliable energy. So does the lack of a robust CapEx cycle, has that really plagued the development of, of the oil sectors to continue the development in in this sector that is is so precious and, and needed at this time? So partially, so it depends on what timeline you look at. I mean, even in the 2010s, which was not a period of, of in most places, energy development, in North America, we had shale. Uh, and so we brought a lot of shale oil on quickly. And part of that was because of like basically no cost of capital. So most of those companies were not profitable. They were growing quickly. 
They were not earning, you know, free cash flows. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were relying on all these, all these investors pouring money and buying their debt, buying their equity. Uh, and when that started to dry up, now we're getting kind of a challenge in the shale patch, especially because you've also sucked out a lot of the, the, you know, the lowest hanging fruit. You've gotten a lot of the, the easiest uh, shale deposits. And now you're kind of moving on to, you know, maybe the less ideal ones. You know, there's still growth ahead, but it's, it's not as quick as I think we're accustomed to. And so once you kind of tap out, uh, you know, shale, not that it's going to go away, but it's just going to maybe stop growing. Um, then the question was, where does the marginal barrel of, of oil come from globally? And of course, there, you know, there are more places to look. You can expand oil sands. You can go in the Arctic you can go, you know, you can go in the China Sea. There, there's, there's multiple more places to get it. There's places in Africa you can get it, but essentially, some of the oil that's left is is just harder, you know, either either ge- uh, ge- like in terms of geology or in terms of geopolitics. And then also when we've kind of hampered ourselves from going to get it, um, basically, I think we're just we're just due for another CapEx cycle. Um, and, you know, to the extent that we resist doing it, we're going to get these recurring inflationary spikes where, you know, maybe when we're slowing down, when our economy is kind of in, the, you know, pseudo recession mode, we can avoid inflation because we're not really using more energy. But if we're going on another growth cycle, those energy supply side constraints are still there. And so I do think that it's going to be a challenge. And then also, some of these countries have done things like windfall taxes uh, on energy companies. And then if you're if you're an energy major and you're planning about your capital expenditure budget, you're like, well, I don't even know how much of the profits we're going to get to keep. We have all the downside risk from developing a new project, uh, but we have unclear upside potential of how much of that we'd get to keep. And so maybe we should just, you know, buy back more shares, pay more dividends, strengthen our balance sheet. And and that, you know, basically changes the incentive structure for how, uh, you know, CEOs want to manage their companies. Do you think that that has really affected the the metals miners as well as a, a real lack of a capex cycle to bring more metals into production? So I think so, but it's you know both both oil and copper. I mean they're still off their like long term highs, for example, um, and so I, it's not really gotten super severe yet. Uh, I, I think it's really that it's, it's still building, right? I mean it, it's it's hard to bring a new copper line copper mine. Uh, I mean, it, obviously, it happens occasionally, but it's basically hard to build them as quickly as they used to be built. There's all sorts of, of environmental regulations. And a lot of these countries, it's understandable. I mean, basically, there's a history of, you know, rich countries coming in, you know, uh, basically getting all their minerals and like leaving them with the mess and not a lot, not necessarily a lot of the profits. And so you have this, you know, this kind of, um, you know, this trade off that always happens. And basically, I think we're due for another CapEx cycle in copper uh, and a number of other um uh things and it shows up in some markets before others and so for example you know gas is not a portable market you know it's a much harder you know it's not like you have one global natural gas price right gas is a very localized price it could be you know five or ten times higher in in europe or in japan than it is in north america at times sometimes even higher than that during, mm-hmm. during the worst part and that's because you know in order to transport gas you have to hyper freeze it transport it on specialized ships and then unfreeze it it's a very specific process there's only there's only a finite amount of capacity for that um whereas oil is pretty easy to ship globally so there while there are a handful of different oil prices uh it's a more global market for oil it's a it's a more fungible pricing market mm-hmm. um and so we've had some of the energy crises show up in the less fungible energies so oil never reached 
its prior highs. Even when it was up to 120 barrel, that was not its high. It, you know, over a decade ago, it was higher than that briefly. Um, whereas natural gas did get to extraordinary heights over in Europe and Japan. And so I think that, you know, later this decade, the, the concern is that you could have a similar spike in oil that you saw in gas that basically, you know, it's not gotten super bad yet. Uh, but if we if we continue to underinvest in that space while the global growth continues, if India keeps growing, um, if parts of Africa keep growing, you know, parts of Southeast Asia keep growing, all these all these uh, people from a low base of, of energy usage still growing up and kind of catching up to the developed world, that's a higher average base of energy consumption. Uh, and I do think we're, we're likely to run into a, a, a more severe energy crisis in this decade if we don't get ahead of it. Mm -hmm. Lynn, do you think that mi the mining of precious metals constitutes a smart way of expending energy that is possibly becoming more scarce? So I think as long as people desire precious metals, then yes. I mean, obviously, you need precious metals for, for certain industries. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, uh, gold, you know, a large portion of it is jewelry and savings. Uh, but there's a smaller part that's used for industry. Uh, but as long as people want it to save uh, because of, you know, the, if the alternatives like, you know, fiat currencies, um, they're going to do it. And, it, you know, Bitcoin's a, an interesting option, but it's a 14-year-old technology. It's volatile. Not everybody understands it. Not everybody you know, has concluded that it's a good store of value. And so, you know, there's gold. And I, that's why I like a mix of, of different assets. Um, as far as becoming more scarce, I mean, essentially, Gold is still near its all-time highs for annual production. When I mean, you look at it like a 50 or 100-year chart for how much gold is mined per year, it's generally an upward trend. Mm -hmm. uh, but the neat thing is I, I remember seeing a chart from NYDIG um, that showed um, gold's estimated supply inflation rate over a century, which is it's basically how much is mined per year compared to how much is estimated to exist above ground. Mm -hmm. And it's it was actually extremely stable between 1% and 2% per year, almost like clockwork, averaging around 1.5%. Mm -hmm. And so if you look at global fiat currencies, um, I remember uh, the economist uh, Safety Amos, he did um, research and showed that the weighted average fiat currency in the world uh, over the past X number of decades, I forget his exact timeline, let's call it 50 years or so, grew at something like 14% supply inflation per year. Now, obviously, you have, um, you know, some of the developed countries are growing at a, maybe a high single digit pace per year on average. Uh, some of the other countries are growing at 20, 30 percent or more, some of the more inflationary ones, averaging around 14 percent, whereas gold is, you know, averaging 1.5 percent, uh, you know, supply growth per year, like clockwork. Um, and so that, you know, that could change in the future. Uh, but that that's partially what's made it good money for, for such a long period of time is it is very hard to rapidly expand its supply no matter how good our technology gets mm -hmm. i was actually thinking that the the energy is becoming the more scarce commodity is that is that something that you you think is happening or is it or is it just the energy that is easy to get to so i think that you know it, it's funny if you look at um debates about the gold standard from like a century ago there are people discussing whether or not it's a waste of energy to get all this gold. And it's, mm -hmm. it's you know, but but the, the proponents of it were like, no, we need sound money. I mean, basically that, that energy expenditure is why this money stays scarce mm -hmm. and why you can't just print more of it. Um, and so I, I I do think as long I, I think markets price it as long as people want it, I think it's worth spending energy on it. Um, unless or until there's a, a better way. 
Um, I think the same arguments kind of apply for Bitcoin. Some people complain about Bitcoin's energy usage. Say, well, Bitcoin is is providing this global network of payments and savings, and there's millions of people that want to use it, and so uh, it, it's being used in that way. So I do think that some of these industries can run into energy, you know, problems. It can it can certainly affect their bottom line. Um, but I think that you know, as the market can dictate what is a important use of energy. I mean, I think that. I think gold mining is still a useful form of energy. I think Bitcoin mining is a useful form of energy. Um, I think that flying around, meeting people is a useful form of energy. Heating your home is a useful form of energy. Obviously, there's like a almost like a Maslow's hierarchy of needs. But I actually think that good money is one of the, the foundations for, for what people need to expend energy on. Mm-hmm. So, Lynn, as we as we look forward to this, this coming year of 2023, what are the biggest question marks that stand out to you that could affect any of your investment theses this year? I think a key thing to watch is the dollar index, because right now, most signs point towards worsening U.S. domestic liquidity. So as long as the Fed continues to draw down their balance sheets, you're likely to get you know, unattractive domestic liquidity conditions. Um, that's offset by the fact that China is trying to reopen um, and that the dollar is off of its highs. And so actually global uh, uh, liquidity indicators are up because a lot of those are tied to the fact that the dollar is weakening. That's actually good for a lot of the world that has dollar-dominated debts. Mm-hmm. And one thing I always like to remind is that most of the debts are not owed to the United States. Uh, you know, it's like China literally you know, lends dollars to countries in Africa and, and you know, Europe, the countries and entities in Europe lend dollars to entities in South America, for example. So even though they're dollar-denominated, they're actually owed to various foreign entities. But essentially, when when the dollar is weakening, it means that the liabilities of a lot of you know entities around the world are weakening, which which is you know it's good for their their growth prospects. They're you know they're able to um, basically expand more. And so I think the biggest thing to watch that you know can affect overall recession risk or maybe the comparison between U.S. assets and foreign assets is what happens with the dollar if if other countries. You know, are able to tighten more if they're able to reopen more, and if the U.S. kind of stagnates, you could have maybe a less severe recession in the U.S. than you'd expect because it's partially being pulled up by that that foreign, uh, you know, activity, um, and you could have that divergence. On the other hand, if the dollar spikes again, you know, you're likely to get a, a more disorderly, you know, market conditions globally. Yeah, very, very interesting and and important things to to look at there. Of course, all of the kind of topics that we talked about today are available on your website. The articles that I've, you know, that we base this conversation on. Lynn, is there anything else that you think we should touch on before we wrap up today? Uh, no, I think we covered a lot. I think that um, I, I did write that energy piece um, uh, on lindalden.com. People can check out. That's like a long form piece. It's it's not one of those pieces that's like you know telling you how to trade in the next six weeks. It's basically uh, trying to basically discuss in depth how energy works uh, so that people can kind of understand at a deeper level. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we covered a lot here. It's basically there's there's so many dynamics related to energy, related to, you know, central bank financing. And I think that, that most of them point towards long term inflation. But it's about you still have to navigate the next year to make sure that you're in a good position to get through, you know, the rest of the decade. Yeah, you have to not not get killed over the next year to to stay yeah. in the market, right? Exactly. Wonderful. I'll I'll make sure I put the links to those articles in the in the show notes. 
as you said, those are available at lynnalden.com. And of course, your Twitter handle is at lynnaldencontact. Lynn, thanks so much for your time today. Really appreciate the in-depth discussion here. Thanks for having me. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. Guests on this show are not compensated for their appearance. Listeners are urged to educate themselves and make their own decisions. Do not base any investment decisions on the information contained. To view our full disclaimer, please visit our website.